Join the conversation. Join the conversation. You're with Cape Talk. And welcome back to another edition of Longer with Lester. As you know, it's an opportunity to stretch our legs a little bit, get through those meteor interviews that we are unable to do during a live show. Now, on this interview, we are talking with Mark Fassi, an award-winning writer and journalist who has often delved into the world of politics. His uh, previous books include the award-winning Taboom Beki, A Dream Deferred, as well as Lost and found in Johannesburg. It's a memoir. Now, his in-depth understanding of politics and the personalities involved has made Mark Officer often the go-to guy in understanding the minds of political figures. But it's his study of everyday people like you and I in our own battles, our own conflicts, uh, that has proved him to be a master of understanding the human condition and how we navigate this world. Now, his latest book, The Pink Line, has been six years in the making. It follows the stories of people in nine countries all over the globe. They tell the story of how LGBT rights have become one of the world's new human rights frontiers in the 21st century, from refugees in South Africa to activists in Egypt. The Pink Line tells the stories affecting individuals their families, and of course, the communities of which they come from. Now, it's often discussed of how LGBTQI plus has now become normalized, uh, even uh, it's almost indifferent in particularly middle class urban communities that you and I may be living, but still at the same time. Many still battle with victimization as well as violence. While same-sex marriage and gender transitions are now celebrated in some parts of the world at the same time, laws are still enforced and enacted against homosexuality and gender nonconformity in other parts. Here in Cape Town, corrective rape is still very much an issue in our townships. We're merely kilometers away in the city center pride parades are celebrated it's these two worlds that many people now live in mark officer joins me now mark thank you so much how have you been i'm good lester thank you for that beautiful introduction and 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 summary of of what the book is about i don't think there's anything left for me to say (laughs) (laughs) well i want to start by talking about how was it During South Africa's transition into a new progressive democracy in 1994, LGBT rights were already part of the reforms that were in the phase of being introduced by the new ANC government. Gay rights were already written into the ANC's ready-to-govern documents. Not many people know about this. How did this come about? Yeah. Look, that didn't happen. That didn't happen, kind of out of nowhere. That happened because of the very um, dogged work of a few activists. Um, most, most significantly, a man named Simon and Cody, who was uh, who was in a, 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 a very significant treason trial um, in in the late 1980s with people like Terra Lakota and other leaders of the movement, and and who came out during his trial. Uh, therefore forcing the liberation movement to deal with the fact that there was a comrade among them, 
someone who really had, you know, who had, 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 had shown as much bravery and commitment as any of them. Um, who was who, who was who was standing trial next to them at the same time in exile? Um, uh, leaders of the African National Congress, like Thabo Mbeki, uh, were involved in with anti-apartheid movements, where a huge amount of support for for the anti-apartheid struggle came from the gay community. So, in countries like Canada or the Netherlands or the United Kingdom, they were meeting uh, gay people, lesbian people. Who, who were providing really among, among the most powerful international solidarity that there was. So from these two different places and, and, and from also from, from activists, particularly in Cape Town, there was an organization, a really important organization in Cape Town called Olga that was a significant part of the UDF. This notion came about that if you are going to get rid of, of the idea of first-class citizens and second-class citizens and third-class citizens, you need to look not only at race, but also at gender, not only at gender, of course, but also at sexual orientation. And, and this was a foment that happened in the early 1990s. But, but I want to say something about it because it really cuts to um, the theme of my book that you've mm. already illuminated so well, is it happened incredibly quickly. Mm. And it happened at a legal level. So before South Africans knew it, uh, we had a constitution that was the first constitution in the world to explicitly outlaw uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Now, what happens when the law moves so quickly, mm. when the law moves more quickly than perhaps um, social attitudes on the ground? Well, one of the things that happened in South Africa is, is that a group of young people feel newly empowered to come out, to claim their status, mm. uh, to, to participate in pride marches, to choose their partners, uh, to, to be out to their families and communities. And this was happening in the early 1990s, not only in the suburbs, but in the townships mm. too. And, an extraordinary, powerful new uh, working class black queer movement mm. was claiming space because it was an era of liberation and because there was now this constitutional mm. protection. Now, now, what happened in response to that was a kind of backlash, a backlash by, by, by priests and patriarchs, by, by men who did not like this idea of, of women choosing their own women, of women saying no to men. And this idea came mm. up that particularly in, in working class environments of color, that... Um, that these that this new this new category of people were actually in competition mm. with quote unquote real men, and this is really one of the things that led to the the epidemic of what's called punitive rape in the townships. Mm. And the reason why I mention this is for is for two for two reasons because one of the things my book tracks is the, is the very awkward and sometimes difficult dance between legal reform and social change. Mm. And secondly, because when you describe this world where in some, in some places uh, there's liberation and in other places there's new, um, there's new restrictions on rights and violation, those two are part of a system. 
And they're part of a system of action and reaction. They're part of a system of something that in many cultures and many parts of the world used to be deep underground, used to not be spoken about, used to be on the down low, and is now out in the open. And that causes a certain form of cultural and political crisis. And that's what we've, we've seen and what I track not only in South Africa, but but all over the continent and, and other parts of the world too, mm. like Eastern Europe. Of course, there are known and there are plenty of unknown activists, but I want to talk about some of those those figures, as you mentioned, in that early 90s campaign. We look at campaigners like um, Beverly Ditsy, we look at um, Edwin Cameron, Zaki Ahmad, particularly when it comes to um, stigma regarding homosexuality and HIV and AIDS. Cult of, uh, activism runs deep in the roots of, of South Africa. It's probably one of our well, finest well, the, expo exports. The three, the three people you mentioned, uh, Bev Ditsi, Edwin Cameron, Zaki Ahmad, I would add Simon and Cody to there. He, mm. he is, he's no longer with us. He died of AIDS, but he must not be forgotten. Uh, I, would, I would add a, a couple of Cape Tonians as well, and particularly a woman who's still alive named Sheila Basel. These activists began their activism, whether they were black or white, uh, in the anti-apartheid struggle. Not in the gay rights movement. They weren't, they were, they didn't begin in liberating themselves. They began in, in trying to overturn this intensely unjust system mm. that we were all part of. And, and, and in the process of that, um, they, they began to think about uh, the rights of people on the basis of sexual orientation too. Mm. But the roots are in the anti-apartheid struggle. And I think that's one of the things that makes the South African movement so potent. Another person who really has to be mentioned is Archbishop uh, Desmond Tutu. Mm. Because if you look at um, Africa and you ask why it is that, polit that, that the politics of homophobia wasn't weaponized in South Africa uh, the way it was in other parts of Africa, like you know Robert Mugabe in Zimbabwe, or or or, or Uganda is a very famous mm -hmm. example, or Nigeria, or more recently Tanzania and Malawi. Why we haven't had those politics of intense homophobia? It, it's because um, right-wing homophobic Christians or Muslims could not depend on the support of the mainline churches in mm -hmm. South Africa, because our churches too had roots in the anti-apartheid movement and in liberation theology. So, so Archbishop Tutu very famously said at one point that after apartheid, the world's greatest scourge was homophobia. Mm. They were not up for being marshaled against a certain category of South Africans, given uh, where they had come in the anti-apartheid mm. struggle. It's interesting how you mentioned other African countries, and we're looking at the the decolonization of the statute books and what we often don't realize when particularly homophobic voices from an Africanist point of view say that um, homosexuality is un-African when in fact homosexuality when it comes to the law are often the remnants of colonial British laws. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and you, can, you can say that even more strongly is, is that that all the anti-homosexuality legislation that countries like Uganda um, or Malawi use um, uh, is, 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 is a hangover from the colonial era, uh, which brought this no, a, a very particular legal notion of, 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 of legal and, and religious notion with monotheism. You know, remember the, 
the, the, the colonizer came with the Bible in one hand and the law book in the other. And, and waving the Bible, he said, you know, this is sin. And, and waving the law book, he said, this is illegal. And into that category, he put homosexuality. And he put it there, really, when you look at the, at, 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 at the very interesting history that's been done on this and that I recount a bit in my book, he put it there almost as a way of, of policing um, African sexuality and desire and putting it into a European box. Now, we mustn't get what some people call Afro-romantic about this. We mustn't have this idea that before the colonizer came along, you know, this continent was one sort of big, happy, polyamorous party where anybody could be with whom they wanted to be. That would be a, a, a kind of rose-tinted view of history. There has always, they've always in, in all cultures, pre-colonial and post-colonial, there has been patriarchy. There have been bloodlines that need to be continued. There have been a sense of what is wrong and what is right. But this particular constraint is one that was brought in from the colonizer. And it's really um, such an irony uh, that uh, latter-day um, Christian fundamentalist Africanists uh, now use these laws to say that homosexuality mm. is un-African. Mark, our, our worldview, for many of us, based on the TV we watch, the media we consume, gives us the idea that particularly the Western world is all welcoming, is all accepting, no matter of your your stripes, your gender um, identity, or your sexual preference, that is what we are given in terms of our our social media, our pop culture diet. But the world isn't like that, is it? I mean, of course, the world is more complicated. Mm. Uh, there, there is some truth, which is is that as a result of social and legal shifts, um, if you if you track the number of Americans now who are in favor of same-sex marriage as opposed to 20 years ago. Or if you look at the amazing referendum in Ireland from 2014, mm -hmm. where in this Roman Catholic country, 64% of the population uh, voted in favor of same-sex marriage. It was a huge surprise. And what, what, what data like that tells us is that attitudes are changing mm -hmm. incredibly quickly in the West. Uh, more quickly than, than any other social movement has changed attitudes. Mm -hmm. and, and not just in the West, in, in other parts of the world too, in, in, in India, in Latin America, um, in, in, in other parts of Asia, and even in parts of, of Africa, more slowly. So, so that, that, but, but, but in the West, that's absolutely true. But, that, but nonetheless, um, what I've noticed uh, and what I write about in my book is, is that I call my book The Pink Line, because the pink line is what I say is this is this new global human rights frontier that you spoke about at the beginning of 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 this discussion that kind of describes and divides the world in a whole new way and in a way that we don't fully understand. And there are a few things I've noted in the book that that really ground um, the stories that I tell. And one is is that this has happened in an era of digitization, of mass mobilization, of globalization. So so no so ideas travel more quickly than ever before and, and are way more difficult to contain and control, which is why we have these ideas in the first place that you spoke about in different parts of the world. But the other thing I've noted is is the way the pink line has shifted in the West over the past decade, from when I began uh, researching this book, from same-sex marriage, gay rights, and over to transgender rights. So transgender rights is now the new pink line. And transgender rights is, 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 is what is being 
is the frontier that people are fighting over and where the new discomfort is. And, and there are two questions to ask. The first question is, is, why did it shift from gay rights over to transgender rights? And, and the second question is, is where I think, where is it going with transgender rights as, as the new frontier and how does that affect us all? Um, and particularly those of us who come from parts of the world where, where gender nonconformity has been um, uh, uh, part of culture in such interesting ways, always, uh, historically. For example, in South Africa, the way, um, you know, tr we have this idea that transgender is a new category in South Africa and that there are these new people calling for transgender rights in South Africa. Now, that's true in terms of calling for rights. But, but, but way back in, 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 in Southern African history and, and even till today, it's acceptable that if you are, a, if you are gender nonconforming, if you are sort of born female but are a very um, but are very butch, or you are born male but are are very femme, in 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 traditional culture, not in urban culture, in traditional culture, it could be seen that you that you are possessed by an ancestor of the opposite gender, therefore bringing you closer to that ancestor, and that can give you certain powers. So it's fascinating in South Africa the way there's a history of of lesbian sangomas or or of gender nonconforming sangomas that contemporary lesbians are reclaiming. Um, that's how, that's the story in South Africa. In the West, there are. There are there are trans people who, on the one hand, have are getting more rights, but are also getting more exposure and more violence against them. Um, it's still really difficult to come out as a queer kid, even in the United States, even in Ireland, because of social conventions, because of religion, uh, because of um, expectations in society. So it's totally wrong, I think, on either side of the pink line, to see things as. Um, as 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 black or white or as was red or, or blue it's all purple <laughs> different shades of purple mm -hmm. And welcome back. We are, in this episode, speaking to Mark Hafisa. He is the author of a new book, Pink, The Pink Line, and having a fascinating conversation on the the changing attitudes, the stories of how LGBT rights have now become the world's new human rights frontier. Before the break, Mark, you were talking about how the immediate social community impact attitude, particularly towards transgendered people, and and I and I recall particularly in the community that I come from, the what's known as Cape Coloured Cape Flats, you know, community, and not too long ago spoke to a transgendered person, and she reflected the story of the use of the word, the M word, in in Morphe. yes, and yeah. and how they relate, and and she told me that outside the house, because she's been raised and born this way, she's accepted inside. Immediately outside the house, she because she's been raised amongst people who generally one would assume would not be as welcoming down the street. She's welcomed and she's accepted for who she is. She says the problem is when she turns the corner and goes into a community who doesn't know her. That's when she feels in danger. That's where she feels victimized. Is that a is is that? A similar story around the world where your immediate community knows you, knows who you are as 
been raised with you your entire life. It's when you step out of the immediate comfort, the immediate safety of, of your own street that things become difficult. That's a, that's a, that's a beautiful and very helpful story. I really, um, I think it's a universal. And um, let me relate it to... Um, and let me relate it to what uh, an Irish author, Colm Tobin, said when he explained why so many um, Irish people voted in, in favour of same-sex marriage. He said, I, we're an island, and Ireland is an intimate society, and everybody knows everybody, and everybody knows somebody, you know, their, their, their brother, their sister, their their teacher, their work colleague, their postman, their neighbor who's gay. And they want those people to have the same rights as them because they know them. And that's how things shifted in Ireland. Now, the world is comprised of intimate societies. Mm -hmm. We all come from intimate societies. Now, we're not all as lucky as the person who, who called in, who you interviewed, who said, that she was accepted on her street and in her family because, I mean, there's an incredibly high number of people all over the world, uh, trans people in particular, gender non-conforming people in particular, who have to flee their homes because, because of the violence they experience as their parents try and police them into a certain image of masculinity or femininity or force them to get married, um, uh, whatever. So they're, they're, that's not necessarily the case. But the truth of the matter is that um, if, even in the, in the stories I tell, and, and some of them are, are, are unbelievably hard, I mean, I'm not, they're, they're not stories mm -hmm. that necessarily in my book that end sort of happily ever mm -hmm. after on the other side of the rainbow. Some, some are hopeful and some are less hopeful. But, but what gave me hope in each of the stories was seeing how each of the people I write about, um, you know, put themselves at great risk to be who they are. Mm. And, and are supported, they find an, an intimate pool of people around them who support them and protect them, no matter what is thrown at them. And, and that is often uh, the family. Mm. That is often the home community. Uh, there's, there's somebody who lives uh, on the Cape Flats now who's the first person I, I, whose story I tell. Her name is Tewonga Chimbalanga. She's a transgender woman from Malawi. And she was forced to flee Malawi after um, she held a public engagement ceremony with her male partner. And it was all over the newspapers. And um, she, was, she was sentenced to 14 years hard labor for carnal knowledge against the order of nature. Eventually, she was pardoned and she came to South Africa where she has, she has asylum status. But it was so fascinating to go. I went to Malawi and I went to her village. And she comes to a rural village. Really, she comes from a rural village, more rural than, um, than, than almost anywhere I've been in South Africa. Like, totally beyond, 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 beyond electricity, beyond anything. Um, and it was fascinating to see how she had been somewhat accepted mm. in this village because she performed a certain role. I mean, it was a gender role. Her role was to look after her uncle, who was a chief. And, 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 and girls look after men. And because the uncle didn't have a wife, uh, this sort of girly boy took the role and therefore mm. was accepted. So I'm not saying that gender roles aren't everywhere and, and your transgender informant might agree, but there's some sort of acceptance 
in 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 a in a small in your community in your family if you play a role and i think what's really important is that role is often a family role it's often a gender role and it's often an economic role mm. one of the ways i i found that people all over the world um sort of gain some sort of acceptance in their home communities is because of what they contribute to mm. their home communities you know and 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 in such interesting ways so so for example in india um it, it's really not okay for girls to go to the city and work mm. right they've got to get married and then go to the groom's family but it's been so fascinating how as indian society's changed and because of economic change girls are allowed to go to the city to do certain kinds of work mm. because they send money home and 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 if they do and for example working in call centers mm. and in these call these call centers in india have become kind of amazing sort of hot spots of mm. lesbian activity because these girls are now sort of rooming with other with, with these young women are rooming mm. with other young women in the city they form relationships um it doesn't matter even if they present butch at work mm. um because they're only on the phone to people in, in other parts of the world and and because they're sending some money home and then mm. or they go home with money they, the fact that they're sort of staying away from marriage is okay because they're earning mm. and of course once they get married and have to come back into the mm. village they're no longer earning so there are all sorts of reasons how how we knit ourselves in closely and i think the the, the work of activism mm. uh difficult as it is is to expand those circles so for the transgender woman you had uh on your show to expand her circle from her street perhaps to her church perhaps mm. to her workplace which means a certain kind of visibility and visibility is always dangerous mm. but but it is it is true that the more people who know who you are and who know that you can do your work well or be respectful or or, or be loving even though you look different or 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 sound different or behave differently uh the more accepted you're going to mm. be Mark, I just want to change tact a little bit. And as I mentioned, I'm a very big admirer of of your work. You've you've written what what, you, what many consider to be the definitive biography of a South African politician, Tabu Mbeki, a, a dream deferred. Uh, but I'd like your thoughts on on autobiographies, politicians post their presidency, wanting to either solidify or or, or realign their legacy. I'm I'm currently at home staring at. Barack Obama's new book. Uh, I'll, I'll wait. Mm. I'll wait a while to start that that seven hundred page. And that's yeah, that's just mm-hmm. on his on his first four years in, in office. Who are you most currently interested in reading? If if a politician or, or someone who's in our public sphere were to write something or or to have you know, something I'm, written about them, it's such an interesting question because I am. I am also staring at that book. and i really am not so motivated to read it much as i'm fascinated by barack obama and and i think the reason why is because um much as i i mean i love memoir writing and 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 autobiography and biography are very different things so i wrote a biography of tabo mbeki and not even an authorized biography he cooperated but i didn't he he did i didn't have to um get his permission he didn't check the words before they went into print i was independent so there's 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 unauthorized biographies there's authorized biographies and there's autobiographies and and frankly for me the unauthorized biographies are the most interesting and i know that goes against the trend because the trend is 
people should tell their own stories. And when people tell their own stories well, they can be fantastic. But when people in power who have had power tell their own stories, they can often be told in such a way that they are kind of self, self-glamorizing. Um, even when you're as reflective a person as Barack Obama, you are thinking about your legacy, you know? And, and that makes me less interested to read them. So I would rather read Robert Caro's incredible three-volume biography of Lyndon B. Johnson mm. uh, if I had some space to read a 700-word life story this holiday than Obama's one. And, and true enough, I mean, I haven't read Obama's yet, but I've read the reviews. And the reviews seem to back this up. The reviews say that, like, until he hits the presidency... It's really interesting and self-reflective, and 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 as good as those memoirs he wrote uh, before he was president, like Dreams of My Father, which mm. I think is is a truly great memoir. But the the account of his presidency is apparently deathly dull, because it's just an account of everything he did, and it's about his legacy rather than 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 the kind of self-reflection I, I would really like to see in a memoir, and that's very hard to see in memoirs of ex-presidents or ex-politicians while they're still alive because their preoccupation is preserving their legacy. Mark Fassa, unfortunately, that's all we have time for, but thank you so much for joining uh, us on um, Longer with Lester. Mark Fassa's new book, The Pink Line, available now. On katalk.co.za On the app On DSTV channel 885 And across the city on 567 AM Join the conversation This is Cape Talk This is Cape Talk